Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. More updates and hearings in the case of Brian Koberger means more back and forth with criminal defense attorney Andrea Burkhardt. We get into the defense asking the judge to reconsider their arguments to dismiss the case. Koberger's team now having access to DNA records and whether any shady stuff happened with the grand jury. Welcome to Sidebar, presented by Law & Crime. I'm Jesse Weber. So we had such a great response to our first Brian Koberger debate, back and forth, whatever you want to call it. It's an episode we did, and we figured, why not have another one? And I'm not sure where it's going to go, but it's going to be interesting. I mean, so much to talk about in the Brian Koberger case, the Washington State University grad student accused of murdering four University of Idaho students back in November of 2022. Authorities say Madison Mogan. Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonsalves, they were all found stabbed to death in an off-campus rental home. Brian Koberger, a then 28-year-old PhD criminology grad student, was arrested, indicted on murder and burglary charges. He faces the death penalty. And prosecutors have tied him to the crime through cell phone data, DNA on a knife sheath left at the scene, a potential eyewitness surveillance footage of a white Hyundai Elantra that investigators say was at or near the house on King Road the night of the killings and on previous occasions. But now there are some new developments, and I want to debate it out, maybe, with Andrea Burkhart, criminal defense attorney. You can check out her YouTube page, at Burkhart Law. You can also go to her Twitter, X profile. It's the same handle. Uh, Andrea, thanks so much for coming on. Great to see you. Thanks, Jesse. It's great to be back. Great to have you. So let's start uh, with the hearings that are going to happen this Friday. So let's, let's break it down. So the defense is trying once again to get the case thrown out. They have argued that the grand jury indictment cannot stand because evidence was withheld from the jurors, that there was a question of jurors' impartiality, that there was insufficient evidence to support the charges against Brian Koberger. Uh, Judge John Judge previously rejected all of these arguments. He wrote in a filing, quote, that the defense attorneys had failed to successfully challenge the indictment on grounds of juror bias lack of sufficient admissible evidence or prosecutorial misconduct. Koberger, quote, was indicted by an impartial grand jury who had sufficient admissible evidence to find probable cause to believe Koberger committed the crimes alleged by the state. And he wrote further, the state did not engage in prosecutorial misconduct in presenting their case to the jury. So first, let me give a caveat to everybody. We don't have a lot of information. This is under seal. Let's keep that clear. Having said that, Uh, Andrea, any reason why the judge would rule differently on this now? Well, there's generally two reasons why lawyers will, will pursue a motion for reconsideration, because speaking very frankly, judges don't typically change their mind. Uh, if they've read the pleadings, they've heard the argument, they're familiar with the issue, and they had a reason for the decision that they made. 
So the reason for bringing a motion to reconsider uh, first can be because there's a specific issue that the defense thinks is important that the judge either did not address in the ruling or they want him to flesh out his reasoning for it. And the reason why they would want to do that gets to the second reason why you file a motion to reconsider, which is that you're positioning the case to ask for an appeal. So typically appeals you have to wait until the case is completely done and resolved before you're allowed to go to a higher court and ask them to find that a wrong decision was made but there can be exceptions for that to be done while the case is still ongoing idaho has a specific rule for how this is done and it appears to me that this is a big part of what the defense uh strategy is in, in bringing these motions in the first place. They're required to bring this motion to the court, ask for permission to, to appeal. So they would be potentially asking him to flesh out reasons for his decisions so that they can then present that to the Supreme Court as essentially the question they are asking the Supreme Court to rule on, whether that decision was correctly made, whether the reasoning was correct, uh, or whether it was not. And also, to be clear, this hearing we're not going to see. It's sealed. It's closed to the public because of the privacy of the grand jurors and the grand jury proceedings. Look, I I'm of the opinion I, I don't see much success here uh, for the defense. I mean, you really laid it out well. I think it's a pretty high bar. It's not like there's been a change in the law. Maybe they have new circumstances, new evidence. Maybe to say that to prevent an injustice, I, I, I think I agree with you. That it seems more that they're trying to create a record here in order to appeal. Um, I think we agree on this one, so maybe I'll move <laughs> forward with this one. Let's let's move on. Let's let's move on this one. Okay, so this is the one that I thought was really interesting, and I really wanted your opinion on this because I I, I can't quite get it. I want your opinion on the defense's argument to unseal their motion for the judge to reconsider, denying their motions to dismiss. I know that was complicated. Let me try to say that a little bit differently. <laughs> they want the public. They want everyone to know what happened with the grand jury. They want their arguments. They want more their motion for the judge to reconsider. They want the public to know this. They say, quote, Mr. Koberger acknowledges the right of the public to be fully informed of the issues. The, de uh, the defense wrote in a filing. My argument is, and this is the way, it seems to me that, you know, the grand jury is a private process. I don't see how they justify the public as much as we would want to see it. I don't mm -hmm. see how they can win this argument. I don't see a justification for the public release of this information. It seems to me like they want to affect a potential jury pool, not taint, but affect a potential jury pool because they're fighting this not only in the court of law, but the court of public opinion. So much has been said about Brian Koberger. That's not allowed though. I mean, what justification could they have to unseal this for everybody to see? Mm -hmm. Well, I first off agree with you on this one as well. I don't think they're likely <laughs> to win this one. Uh, the, for all the reasons you said, the grand jury process is, is highly protected. Uh, but the defense has been signaling for quite some time uh, that they want the public to know what the evidence is in this case. They wanted a public preliminary hearing. The state obviously is not required to do that. They chose to go with, with the secret grand jury process. So what they have against Brian Koberger is still extremely opaque at this point in time beyond what was there in the in the probable cause affidavit. Uh, but even in the original hearing on, on these motions, uh, Mr. Logsdon had made a comment to the effect that uh, some number of the grand jurors had expressed concern that this is all there was to the state's case. They had wanted to see more. Uh, he was 
and rapidly cut off from going further down that line by Judge Judge. Uh, but it seems pretty clear that the defense thinks this is a thin case and they want the public to be aware of that, in part because there's a need to balance the coverage that has been out there on this case. There is a lot of just presentation that tends to presuppose guilt that has relied on a lot of information floating around that isn't necessarily accurate. We've seen a lot of inaccurate information being put out about this case uh, for quite some time. So I think the defense does want to respond uh, to some extent to that that media environment. Uh, but as you said, this, this, is a, this is a protected process. So the only way I could really see this being viable is if the defense was so careful in how they crafted their motion that they didn't discuss kind of the facts, the underlying actions that took place in the grand jury and simply kept it at the 10,000 foot abstract legal issues yeah. where it wouldn't be necessarily revealing anything the grand jury did, but just kind of talking about, you know, the principles of the issue. I still don't think that would get them there because, you know, if you're if you're talking about principles of prosecutorial misconduct in different contexts, well, then it's pretty clear there's a reason why you're talking about that. Yeah, kind of showing the hand. I, I I don't see it. And even if they were to release a document, was it be filled with redactions that we can't even mm -hmm. see any? But but you know, they did raise an argument that they said, listen, the reason we only agreed for this to be sealed. Um, the reason Mr. Koberger sought sealing of these filings was based on email communications with the Latah County Prosecutor's Office because they wanted the filings sealed. We just did what they wanted. Mm -hmm. mm, I don't know. I, that seems like a flimsy argument. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I agree. It doesn't seem like the strongest argument to me. I, I can understand procedurally why they would do it that way. But at the same time, I have to imagine that if their motion does detail facts and circumstances that occurred in the grand jury process that the judge would have been extremely unhappy had they not moved to unseal or moved to seal it uh, on their own initiative. So yeah. it, it does seem like perhaps a bit of a, of an explanation that um, is convenient more than persuasive. Okay. Well, again, and, and to be clear about this one, it's my understanding that the hearing on this issue will also be clo closed to the public to protect the privacy of the grand jury proceedings. All right. So not much of the debate yet. But this one, I feel like this is the one we might not agree on. And by the way, we didn't come into this saying, you take this position, you take this position. This is just what we feel. So if we debate, we debate. If we don't, we don't. Um, but another hearing that is, also, that is also scheduled to hear arguments uh, is on the order denying the motion to dismiss the indictment for inaccurate instructions given to the grand jury. And this hearing is open to the public. I find this one to be fascinating. So. Ryan Koberger's team had argued that the jury, the grand jury, was instructed on the wrong standard to return an indictment. They argue that the burden of proof should have been only return an indictment if the evidence presented is proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Our highest standard, the one we see at a trial. Because they looked at the language of the Idaho statute and they said, look, the standard for a grand jury is the standard as a trial jury. I'm going to read it. This is uh, Idaho Criminal Procedure Rule 19-1107. The grand jury ought to find an indictment when all the evidence before them taken together, if unexplained or uncontradicted, would, in their judgment, warrant a conviction by a trial jury. So they say it's the same standard. Now, the judge, Judge John Judge, said, creative argument, interesting, can't do anything to change the law. I, I'm, my hands are tied at this point. The law has been settled in Idaho for decades. This is what the Idaho Supreme Court has held. It's always been return an indictment if there's probable cause. Um, 
any success there, Andrea, that they might win this? I don't think they're going to win this one with Judge <laughs> Judge. Uh, but okay. once again, I think this is a situation where they're they're setting it up for the Supreme Court to look at this question. Uh, I'm with you. I, I find this a fascinating argument. I, I actually think this is quite clever, quite compelling yep. from a defense standpoint. Uh, it has its grounding in the Idaho Constitution uh, and, and the right to a grand jury uh, that, that the Constitution provides. The argument is that the grand jury uh, provision has to be based on some pre-existing standard uh, at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, because if it wasn't, then the legislature would be able to just legislate away your right to a grand jury indictment. So they're arguing that it was fixed at the time of the enactment of the Constitution, and the statute reads, as, as you're indicating, uh, that it would have to warrant conviction by a trial jury. And that standard seems pretty clearly to be beyond a reasonable doubt. You can't convict somebody of a crime on, on a lower burden of proof. It makes sense to me from a sort of functional standpoint, because uh, under this system, the grand jury process, the, the defense doesn't get a chance to present anything. They don't get a chance to challenge the state's case. They don't get a chance to present their own evidence. So it's basically requiring that if everything that the state presents goes unrebutted and goes unchallenged, would the jury be able to convict? So that would get you the grand jury indictment. Then at trial, the defense then has the opportunity to be able to challenge the evidence put on their own case. And then we would establish if there is reasonable doubt or not. Uh, so from a practical standpoint, I think it's logical. Now, the state, of course, has pointed out two things. One, no other state does this. Right, <laughs> Juris right. Jurisdictionally, it's pretty right. commonplace now that probable cause is the standard for an indictment. Uh, and Similarly, the Idaho Supreme Court has adopted the rule yes. that uh, establishes uh, be, uh, probable cause as a standard to return an indictment. That was the language that was relied on for the jury instructions, and that's why Judge Judge is essentially saying, look, my hands are tied. The Supreme Court has said this right. is what the standard is. And the defense has pointed out, but they haven't looked at this particular issue. They haven't considered this argument. So it's entirely possible that they just weren't aware of you know, the, these implications when they adopted those those rules. So, so, so it's, it's a fascinating issue. The Supreme Court is the appropriate jurisdiction to be to be deciding it. And correct. that's where I think this question is is going to get very interesting. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. I, I agree. I think if they take it up, it would be very interesting. But this is where I disagree. So, yes, mm -hmm. you know, look, the Idaho Supreme Court, and as John Judge said, 
I mean, nothing's going to change. This case is not going to decide it um, right now. Um, I mean, this has been the law of the land for, for hundreds of years, and this is how we've seen it. But I think from a practical point of view where I disagree with you is that the grand jury has always supposed to be a screening test. It's not about guilt. It's not about a trial. It's if there's enough evidence to go to a trial. And I would suggest to you that if you were to accept proof beyond a reasonable doubt, who raises a reasonable doubt? The defense raises a reasonable doubt. That's the purpose of a trial. Both sides get to do it. I don't think that that standard would make sense uh, for a grand jury because it's not the prosecution raising the doubt. It's, it would be, it would be uh, the defense attorney. It would be defense counsel. And so I think I've always believed, and, I, and even though it is a creative argument because they're looking at the language of the statute, for me practically, it would not make sense for the uh, standard of proof for a grand jury to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt, it should always be probable cause. Is it reasonable that the, uh, the evidence would lead someone to believe uh, that this a crime was committed? That's what you have there. It's a smaller burden. It's a lower burden. It's a screening test before you ultimately decide someone's guilt at a trial. So that's the part where I disagree. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I understand that. I would disagree uh, with you on the position that it's kind of the defense's job to point to reasonable doubt. The, the jury most likely would have been instructed uh, and certainly will be at trial that the defense has no burden of production whatsoever. The state's evidence has to be evaluated on its own merit. And so it's entirely possible and, and does happen that the state can go forward with evidence that fails to establish an essential element of the charge, uh, with evidence that the jury simply finds not credible. There can be, for example, heavy reliance on a witness that, you know, if you believe this witness, there would be there would be proof uh, sufficient to, to go forward. But if the jury doesn't believe that witness, then, then there's not enough to go forward uh, with the prosecution. So the question I think is really, does Idaho have a reason for wanting there to be a higher standard for this screening in the first place? And I would argue it does make sense that there would be a different standard between the preliminary hearing where again, the defense now is present, gets to challenge, gets to present their own evidence, uh, and has a probable cause standard, as opposed to the grand jury proceeding where there's no defense involvement at all. It does make sense that you might want the state's evidence to be uh, somewhat more vigorous to justify in taking somebody's liberty I, I, away I, I, and, and I, subjecting I them you. to a criminal I, prosecution. I, I hear you on that, but I will also suggest that sometimes, and I think you would agree, that when you are dealing with a case at the grand jury level versus the trial level, the evidence, you, you prosecutors or investigators learn a lot more in that period. And they present more, obviously, during a trial than during a grand jury proceeding. And I would suggest that the danger, of course, is if you create such a high burden at the initial stage, you are essentially creating a possibility that people who committed crimes may get off. I mean, I mean, that's that's if you're creating such a high standard at that point, that that could be very concerning um, because we always talk about trials, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, jury of your peers, presentation of evidence, both by the prosecution and the defense. It's the time to decide. But if you're creating a situation where they have to decide proof beyond a reasonable doubt at this initial stage where you might not have all the evidence where the defense counsel can't present something, I, I just I would be concerned that that would have a bad effect. Well, and I would argue that the counter to that concern would be have a preliminary hearing instead of going to the grand jury and then you get the probable cause standard. Yes. But there would be advantage. But there would be times that a preliminary hearing wouldn't work so well. I'll give you an example. 
So with Koberger, right, I think one of the issues concerned um, the surviving roommate, DM, right? And if this was a preliminary hearing, by all accounts, she would have probably had to testify. This was a grand jury, grand jury private um, secret proceeding. Um, the evidence that's presented is very different than in an open public forum. And sometimes I would say it would be unfair now we're saying that everything has to be in the open if we're going to change the standard. There are advantages, um, not just for the prosecution, but there's, there's advantages um, both on a legal and a human level to having a grand jury secret proceeding versus a preliminary hearing. So I would say, you know, now going everything has to be public could be a problem. Well, and that just comes down to, I think, a question of, of values that a particular state might have. Do you want to make it easy to charge people with crimes? Do you want to make it easy to shield the process, the, the reasonings and, and the basis for a prosecution from the public? Uh, I can certainly see a reason why a state might conclude no, we would err on the other side. We believe in liberty. We believe in freedom. We believe the state needs to have strong evidence before they're going to subject somebody to this kind of process to deprive them of their liberty. And the the difference in the standards between the grand jury and the preliminary hearing would be a way to balance those types of considerations. Again, this is all just theoretical. It's yeah, likely yeah, of course. to end up being up to the Supreme Court. Uh, but I, I do think that they are fascinating questions. I, I think it was one of the most creative arguments I've seen in quite some time. And I was really interested in it from a legal perspective. Okay, we're going to get back to Brian Koberger in just a second. And look, I know we are talking about some very serious subject matter right now, and I don't want to take away from that in any way, but I do get excited talking about our partners here on Sidebar who help make these shows happen, and that includes apostrophe, which is something really cool because when you think about the new year, it's always about a fresh start, right? How can we look our best? How can we feel our best? You have to prioritize taking care of yourself no matter how busy you are. For me, I know I'm on camera all the time, these lights, I'll tell you right now, they're not the most forgiving, all right? So I got to make sure I look like a human being. Getting clearer, healthier skin in 2024 is a pretty good resolution. And that is why we're excited to partner with Apostrophe. So whether you're dealing with hormonal acne, breakouts, signs of aging, acne scarring, whatever it might be, Apostrophe's mission is to empower you and help you feel confident and comfortable in your own skin. You see, Apostrophe is an online platform, and it connects you with an expert dermatology team to get you customized acne treatment for your own unique skin. All you got to do is fill out an online consultation about your skin goals and medical history, then you snap a few selfies, and a dermatology provider will create a customized treatment plan just for you. By the way, I got to say, the unboxing experience, delightful. It included these adorable postcards, these personalized stickers on the prescription bottles. It was great. This is great. So right now, we have a special deal for our audience. You can get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash sidebar when you use our code sidebar. That's a savings of $15. And this code is only available to our listeners. So to get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash sidebar, click get started, then use our code sidebar at sign up, and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Again, thank you to Apostrophe for sponsoring this episode. All right, this part, this is a new development. I'm curious your opinion on this. So one of the central issues in this case, one of the key issues that you and I have both talked about, and the key pieces of evidence is DNA. <laughs> so we know that DNA from a knife sheath left behind at the crime scene has been linked to Brian Koberger. Authorities were able to make a familial match of the DNA to Koberger's father. They did this by collecting trash from outside the Koberger home in Pennsylvania. And then after Koberger was arrested, authorities took a cheap swab from him 
and court documents have revealed that that uh, that was almost a statistical match. Uh, that the DNA from the sheath is almost a, a statistical match to Brian, or is a statistical match to Brian Koberger. But we know that Koberger's defense team for months has been asking the prosecu- prosecution, excuse me, to turn over DNA records. These materials held by the FBI in a private lab known as Othram that apparently performed the DNA tests in the case. The prosecution fought back on this, saying first they didn't have access to the records because they were in the custody of the FBI, that they never saw them. They even requested a protective order for the privacy of those individuals who were mentioned um, in the search results. But Judge John Judge reviewed the materials, and he has ordered the prosecution that they had to turn over to the defense some DNA records about investigative genetic genealogy used in this case Again, namely how the material was entered into a public genealogy database. Uh, The filing says, quote, the court has now completed its review of the information provided by the state and orders the state to discover to the defense a portion of the IgG information. Um, My opinion on this is, and I'll allow you to jump on that. Well, first, before I give my opinion, let me turn it to you. Do you think that this is a big win for the defense? And do you think that this could be problematic for the prosecution? So I do think this is a win for the defense. Uh, There is not a whole lot of law out there yet about investigative genetic genealogy and and particularly its role in active investigations. It's been historically used for cold cases and for identifying uh, Jane Doe's, John Doe's, um, people who die and, and are unidentified. Uh, so this is this is quite a novel situation for it to come up in in an active prosecution, and there's not a whole lot of law about it. There also seem to be some kind of conflicting decisions and conflicting reasonings as these types of motions are beginning to work their way through courts all over the country. So I do think this is a win for the defense for them to have access to some of this material for uh, investigative purposes. Is it likely to be detrimental to the prosecution? Well, I think the defense is is looking at two things. Number one, uh, they already told us during the the, uh, arguments on why they wanted this information, uh, what they think it's helpful for. They think that the FBI and law enforcement in this case essentially reverse engineered their investigation. They didn't find the white vehicle and then match it to Koberger and then happen to get the DNA. No, they got the DNA first and they went backwards. And so then they identified a white car that gave them a time frame. Uh, and basically it was not an organic uh, development of suspicion. So that would then call into question the uh, state's theory of, of how the murder was committed, uh, if there can be explanations, alternative explanations for why Brian Koberger's trace DNA would be on that knife sheath besides him touching it. So that can potentially be problematic to the prosecution. The other reason is because uh, they're looking at did the law enforcement follow the law when they uh, engaged in this process? Is there potentially a reason for some of this evidence to be excluded. We know that this is a concern because number one, it was called out in the probable cause affidavits supporting the search warrants that were issued in Whitman County. There was a disclaimer, I think I mentioned last time on your show that was quite extraordinary. I've never seen it in a warrant affidavit at all where they said, you know, we got this DNA, but just on the off chance, you know, any of this gets excluded, we want you to make your probable cause determination 
based on everything else, not considering this DNA. That is quite extraordinary. Uh, so clearly law enforcement is concerned about the potential for suppression of some of this evidence. And second, we also know just from what we have seen from the probable cause affidavit that law enforcement did not follow the Department of Justice policy for arresting an individual on the basis of investigative genetic genealogy research. That po policy very specifically requires a confirmatory sample from the target. And so that's why they go and um, purloin the trash. Like they, they did it with the Golden State Killer. They did it with uh, the Coburger residents in this particular case, but they did not confirm the target. As you indicated, they confirmed the target's, the target's father. So that doesn't meet the standard that's set forth in the policy. Now, the policy but, but, isn't but, but a constitutional but just, standard. Just, 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 just to jump on that, there are many mm -hmm. times that the investigators will have DNA, and once they have the suspect in custody, they take a further <laughs> DNA swab of their cheek or the inside of their mouth, um, and, and that's how that adds to an extra point of confirmation. I mean, I saw it just recently. I was covering the George Birch case uh, out in Wisconsin. Um, it's not extraordinary for that to happen. And, and just to push back a little bit on this, you know, familial DNA is a tool, right? It's a means to an end. So it wasn't as if they, they got this DNA and then they secured a warrant to arrest Mr. Koberger. It was a part of the overall investigation. And they used IgG to begin the process of developing a lead uh, on who left the DNA on the knife. Um, it pointed law enforcement towards Koberger, but they didn't arrest him because then, remember, it was pretty soon on that they had the white car. They saw that this white car, they figured out it was registered. Um, they looked at registered vehicles in Washington State University. They, then they saw that it was Koberger. Then they have the cell phone records. And so, you know, they found a DNA. First of all, they found the DNA. They ran it through CODIS. They found no hits. There was nothing in the criminal database. Um, but they, it's a part of the collection of the overall evidence. I would say, I would normally, I'd say if they had the DNA and then they arrested him and then from there they found everything else, I'd say it's a problem, but it didn't seem to be that way. It was a lead, but I don't think it was necessarily, uh, the end all be all. It was a tool, which I think is why I don't really see the defense going anywhere with it. Well, I think that's really going to be the question is, is how central did this type of investigation, what, what, how central was its role in, in the overall placing of suspicion on, on Brian Koberger ultimately leading to his arrest? Uh, as far as the confirmatory sample goes, that's just a question of did the FBI follow their own rules? Uh, there's, we have exclusionary rules that apply to evidence gathering in, in criminal courts. Uh, typically, if the, if the feds violate your constitutional rights, they don't get to capitalize the, on that and then present that evidence against you at trial. That evidence is excluded. So that's the type of thing that I think the defense is going to be looking for. I don't know that a simple violation of the Department of Justice policy for investigative genetic genealogy investigations would meet that standard. Uh, but it might. Like we've said, this is a very novel issue that is being fleshed out. Uh, and, and so that would be a concern if the court said, yes, FBI broke their own rules. They were not justified in making this arrest of Brian Koberger because everything downstream of that is now fruit of the poisonous tree, including that confirmatory swab that they got from his cheek. That would be the problem. So I agree with you. The likelihood is probably quite small, but the magnitude, the effect that that would have on the case would be quite significant. So that's why it's so important for the defense to focus on it. All right. Well, I, I tell you what, um, if people are like, well, why don't you debate the rest of the evidence and whether or not if the DNA is excluded, you know, can he be convicted? Watch our previous debate episode between me and Andrea. <laughs> but I did have one last. I don't even know if this is a debate, but I, I think it's a really interesting question. A trial date hasn't been set. 
There's been talk by the prosecution that they're hoping for a summer date. I was curious, and by the way, in terms of that's the timing, potential timing. In terms of location, it seems there's been no nothing to support the idea that there's going to be a change of venue. It seems that the judge here has scheduled this to happen in Latok County. I am of the opinion, A, I think this should happen in the summer. One, who really wants to stand outside in the cold during the uh, freezing months in Idaho. Um, but two, you know, I, I, think that would, I think that would be helpful. But two, um, I don't necessarily believe in a change of venue. I mean, you really have to suggest that he wouldn't get a fair trial in that county, that he would be prejudiced. A, this case is known everywhere. It's going to be very difficult for people not to have known about Brian Koberger um, or heard something about it. Um, but also, I think there's a difficulty in transporting witnesses and evidence to another county and presenting it somewhere else. I know there's been talk about Boise, Idaho. I, I, I would suggest that this was a crime that happened there. I actually think it's beneficial for people who are of that area to maybe understand the landscape of what we're dealing with. You know, and so I am of the opinion this case should remain in that county. And obviously, from my perspective, covering it, the sooner the better. I would love to see it, have a conclusion to this case. Um, where do you stand on it? Well, so... Uh couple of thoughts about this. Um, first off, as far as where it's going to be held, uh, I'm with you, Jesse. I am, uh, we are, we are very much against the mainstream opinion on this, uh, that, that somehow this community can't be fair to Brian Koberger. The publicity has permeated the entire country, arguably the entire world. So it's not like moving it to Boise is, is going to solve that problem. Uh, I have been saying for quite some time, if I'm the defense attorney on this case, there is no way I am moving to change the venue. Uh, number one, the biggest reason is because you risk losing this judge. This judge is an absolute gem. Uh, he is come across as extremely fair. He is willing to consider defense positions. He's willing to, uh, you know, frankly, follow the law when that's the direction where, where the law takes him. So. It's possible that the judge could follow the case if it were transferred to another venue. Idaho does allow that, but it's discretionary with him. And Judge Judge is the chief administrative judge uh, for that judicial district in Idaho. He's got other responsibilities in that area. I could see him not wanting to you know, abandon those responsibilities to, to take on this, this case in another county. So big risk that you lose the judge if, if you move and um, very <laughs> unlikely that you're gonna do better than, than him. The second reason is for the reasons that you've said. This is this community's case. This community who is, is who is affected by it. This community was traumatized by it. This community has the most interest. The, the, they're the ones who have the, the vested, uh, interest in seeing that the right person is caught, that the evidence is, is sufficient to support that, that conviction, they have a much stronger interest than people in some other community who weren't personally affected by it. So I think that you're likely to get uh, jurors who are going to be fair, who are going yep. to be attentive, yep. And who are going to consider the evidence very, very carefully in making their decision. So yeah, I'm with you. I don't think it's uh, strategically wise to move for a change of venue. Now, having said that, when a change of venue is based upon things like pretrial publicity, <clears throat> it's very common for that motion to not be raised uh, until you're essentially in the jury selection process because you have to see who shows up uh, as your potential right. jurors and what right. the effect of that publicity has been on them. So we likely wouldn't get that motion uh, for quite some time anyway. All right. Well, when this trial happens, I'm sure we'll 
uh, debate about some of the evidence as it comes out. Uh, Andrea Burkhart, thank you so much. Hope everybody can check out her YouTube page at a Burkhart Law and her Twitter X profile is the same handle. Thanks so much for coming on. Great seeing you. Thanks, Jesse. Good to be back. All right, so not much of a debate between Andrea and I that much, but interesting to hear nonetheless the different issues that are going on. That's all we have for you right now here on Sidebar. Thank you so much for joining us, and please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jesse Weber. I'll speak to you next time.